Welcome to Inside Reagan, the Reagan Institute's official podcast. I'm Liam Fitzgerald. Today I'm accompanied by Dr. Doug Kwan, the principal investigator of the Kwan Lab here at the Reagan Institute. In his lab, Dr. Kwan focuses on the application of new technologies to the study of immune responses against HIV, specifically at mucosal surfaces. In addition to running his lab, Dr. Kwan also serves as the Director of Clinical Operations at the Reagan Institute and has a clinical practice in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Mass General Hospital. Today, we're going to talk about the research that is being done in Dr. Kwan's lab and continue our series on what it means to be a clinician researcher in the dynamic world of bench-to-bedside medicine. Welcome, Dr. Kwan. Thanks, Liam. First, I'd like to talk about your research here at the Reagan Institute. As mentioned on your website, quanlab.mgh.harvard.edu, the immune response to HIV has mostly been studied in the peripheral blood. However, blood contains just 2 to 3% of all the body's lymphocytes, the type of white blood cells that HIV infects and destroys. At the same time, mucosal surfaces such as the female reproductive tract, lungs, and gut contain up to 90% of the body's lymphocytes. So this begs the question, why is there so much research being done on HIV in the blood and not at these highly populated mucosal sites? It's because it's easy, ultimately. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, the blood is the most accessible compartment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we feel that a lot of the most critical events in HIV transmission and disease progression actually occur in mucosal tissues. And that's why we focused on looking at uh, sort of Im- the immunology of uh, HIV infection in these tissue sites. But it is certainly a lot harder. So what makes it harder? Well, it's because to study you know, what's happening in tissue, you actually have to sample that tissue site, which means that you have to do a procedure to get there, right? Mm-hmm. So we do bronchoscopies. We'll, we'll take a small video camera at the end of a long tube, put it in the lung, do washings to, to sample secretions and also immune cells within the lung. We'll do colonoscopies, take small pinch biopsies of tissue, um, pelvic exam in women, upper endoscopies, rectal biopsies. All of these sites need a procedure to um, get access to them. And that makes it technically more challenging, not only because of the procedure, but also once you get there, you're much more restricted in terms of how much material you can sample to sort of see what's going on. In terms of how I think about what are the most important questions, so I'm a clinician, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a clinician, but you know, I believe that doing research is the only way that we're actually going to be able to solve the HIV problem, mm-hmm. right? That this is not just a matter of you know treatment, you know, more effective treatment, getting more treatment out there. Um, it's not about getting more clinicians out in the field, although those are things that we need. That mm-hmm. the only way we're going to end HIV is through more research. So, you know, the lab has three areas of interest that center on um, mucosal immunology or the immunology at certain tissue sites that are based upon what I feel are three of the most important problems for me. So one is we're trying to understand um, the mucosal immunology of the female genital tract and how it relates to HIV, specifically HIV acquisition, right? So why do we think the female genital tract is important? Well, if you think about you know, how many people are there infected with HIV? There are something like about 35 million, 
right? Most of those people are within Sub-Saharan Africa. And actually, most of those people are women. And what you see is of the 1.5 million new infections that occur each year, most of those new acquisitions are occurring in young women, particularly. So to understand how to stop new acquisitions in HIV, I think that you have to understand how women acquire HIV biologically. Um, and so a focus of our lab is understanding what are the factors within the female genital tract that are important and importantly impact HIV acquisition mm-hmm. risk in women. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly when you think that those initial events, because most of those women, over 90% of those women are being, are being exposed to HIV through heterosexual sex, mm-hmm. understanding those first events within the female genital tract that help establish the infection are particularly critical for trying to figure out how to how do we stop transmission? Mm-hmm. So that's one area of HIV that is of big interest to us, which is, you know, how do we understand those earliest events that affect whether or not a woman becomes infected once she's exposed? Mm-hmm. You know, the other big problem is disease progression. And, you know, disease progression is a problem not just in, you know, people who are off therapy, but also people who are on antiretroviral therapy. Mm-hmm. It's clear that um, even if you're suppressed on treatment, you have no detectable virus in your blood, that you still see some of the immune consequences of, of the infection, namely um, chronic levels of um, systemic immune activation and inflammation. And although treatment has done a great job in improving the lives of HIV-infected people, um, it's clear that we could do better. People with HIV still live significantly less time than people who aren't infected. Mm-hmm. And the causes of mortality and morbidity in treated individuals are mostly inflammatory related, things like stroke, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis. And so it's clear that they still suffer from ongoing chronic inflammation. That inflammation seems to be important for why they continue to have these poor outcomes. And so what does that have to do with mucosal immunology? Well, we think that, and I would say that the prevailing model out there is that the gut is really one of the key drivers, that HIV causes a lot of inflammation in the gut, in part because most of your body's T cells are in the gut, and that's the cell that HIV infects. And that one of the consequences of that is that the normal barrier function of the gut actually gets lost. And so all these bacteria that are in your gut can start um, translocating or leaking through the barriers in the gut and get into the systemic circulation. And that's those bacterial products in the systemic circulation seem to be important for driving this chronic immune activation and leading to disease progression. And so that's one of the reasons why we think the gut is really important. We're trying to look at the gut and, and see how it's, in, how it's involved in HIV disease progression, both in people who are off uh, therapy, but also in people who are on therapy. And then the final area that we're really interested in is in the lung. So the greatest cause of mortality in people with HIV globally is some consequence of TB co-infection, right? So it's the convergence of HIV and TB, which has really made the pandemic what it is today. And so we believe that to really understand, you know, the mechanism by which HIV infection is making people more susceptible to TB is by studying the cells specifically in the lung. Um, And so that's why we're also focused in the lung. So I think anatomically, we really think the female genital tract is important as it relates to uh, HIV acquisition in, in women. The gut is important in, in terms of how it, its, uh, its role in disease progression. And the lung is important because HIV TB is, you know, really TB is the biggest killer amongst people with HIV globally.
the heart of the epidemic is in sub-Saharan Africa. Right. And you've worked closely with the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. So can you tell me about what that's like working there? Yeah, I think that, especially as a clinician, you know, when you treat patients with HIV in the United States, one of the things that I, I tell patients who are newly diagnosed that, you know, a lot of people come in scared when they're when they're first diagnosed with HIV, but I tell them, and this is true, I've never had a patient whom I couldn't find a, an antiretroviral regimen that that worked for them. Mm-hmm. And there's so many great options for treatment now. And we really think of HIV, in, at least in the U.S., as a chronic treatable disease. Mm-hmm. Right? People do very well long-term on therapy. You know, South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in general, you know, there are many areas where that isn't the case. Mm-hmm. So... And I think, again, if you're really interested in trying to get to the heart of of the epidemic and trying to have an impact, then I think it's important that you study the epidemic, you know, where it's really um, moving unimpeded. And that's, that's, you know, I mean, really, that's in sub-Saharan Africa, and particularly South Africa has regions which have very high incidence and prevalence, you know. In, in this study that we're doing with young South African women, um, they live in this region, KwaZulu-Natal, where, you know, HIV prevalence rates amongst women in their mid-20s are, it's over, you know, they're over 60%, right? Wow. So, you know, if you look at antenatal clinics at 14-year-old girls, less than 1% of them are HIV positive. If you look at um, women who are 24, almost two-thirds are HIV positive. Wow. So it's, you know, in those late teens and early 20s where women are particularly vulnerable to HIV within this area. Mm-hmm. And so we have a study where um, in this region where women come in twice a week um, and we're trying to better understand um, sort of what are the factors that really um, affect their risk of HIV acquisition, spe- specifically in the female genital tract. But as a clinician, one of the things that makes me feel really good about this study is that you know, the women don't come in just to provide a sample, but they come in and each visit, they spend three hours there um, in a very intensive poverty alleviation program where they participate in, you know, educational activities, um, job skills training, obviously HIV prevention. Um, But what's shocking is that despite the fact that they're spending six hours a week in classes there for a year, we don't change HIV acquisition risks. I mean, the rates are exactly the same as community rates, right? So to me, that says this is not going to be solved just through behavioral interventions, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, we need to better understand the biology so we can create better biological interventions that particularly women can use um, to reduce their own risk of acquiring HIV, right? So why do you think that is? Why, Why would you think that... You know, you would think that, okay, if we make condoms available to these young women and we provide a lot of education, that there should be some decrease, yeah. right? Yeah. So why why do you think that would be? Like, why wouldn't, why do you think that there's no change? Well, when I first think about it, thinking about it kind of experimentally, I mean, if, if these women are, so are, so are they being provided condoms and yep. all, that, so all that stuff? Sure. They have extensive sort of educational classes on sort of, um, HIV prevention. So, so, so would that imply that that it has more to do with maybe the diversity of the virus in that area, or the amount of people that's infected 
Sure. They're definitely like, they're high prevalence rates. So they're definitely getting exposed because the community, the community rates are very, are very high there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the question is comparative women who aren't in this program, why do they get infected? Even if there are high community rates, high incidence rates within that, within that area, why can't we reduce just by having like six hours of class a week, you know, for a whole year? Why does that, why does that not have an impact? I mean, I think that part of the reason is because you have to understand the social context in which mm -hmm. transmission is occurring, right? So, you know, if you think about how we prevent HIV infection, right? Mm -hmm. So condoms, circumcision, being monogamous, getting tested. Um, in that social context, those, those, are, those are really preventative measures that are exclusively controlled by men or almost exclusively controlled by men. So many of these women are financially dependent upon their male partners, right? So what's, I think, even more heartbreaking about the situation is that it's not a matter of education. It's not that they don't understand that they're likely to acquire HIV from their partners. It's that they don't have an option, right? Wow. Because, the, because they're financially dependent upon these men, the option would be to not have a home or not have food or clothing, right? So, and these, these women are your age, like, you know, except for the fact that you happen to be born in the U.S. and New England, right? There's really not much difference, you know. I think when I take students down, I think, I think they really get that because they'll be there in the clinic. They'll, you know, sit in on a class and they realize that, you know, they're very similar. They have much more in common than they have, you know, um, um, that's different. So I think that for me as a clinician, um, you know, that's why we're doing research. You know, we're doing research to try to help prevent HIV in Africa, in which people are stuck in a situation that's, you know, impossible. And so you mentioned that you're doing these classes to the women and providing all of the aid, even though you're addressing the fact that there is this huge socioeconomic problem there. So have you considered any ways to combat that problem? Right. Well, Krista Dong, who's sort of running the kind of the the poverty alleviation program is sort of you know that's sort of the goal the goal is to try to create greater financial independence amongst the women right but that takes time so the expectation is not that you know um that there would be necessarily a short-term impact on acquisition rates but that hopefully there's a longer-term impact the nice thing about that program is that 87 percent of those women after that year graduate on and they go on to um, either jobs or, uh, you know, um, degree programs so they can finish their high school diploma or internships. And the hope is there if they became, if they're able to become more financially independent, then they can make decisions that um, will better protect them from HIV. But that, that takes time. And it's an extraordinarily difficult thing. I mean, Krista is really trying to do something which is, you know, very admirable. But, um, you know, from my end, I think my part is to try to figure out, okay, well, how do we help better understand the biology so that we can create, you know, interventions that allow women to protect themselves better within that social context? I mean, the context of HIV, HIV is a preventable disease, right? We, I mean, abstinence is a great way to prevent HIV or condoms or, I mean, there are many modalities out there. It's just, we need something that's actually going to work practically on the ground in this wow. in this sort of social context that the, the epidemic is occurring in. Another unique aspect about this study is um, 
that, you know, because women are coming in twice a week and getting tested for HIV twice a week, you know, it allows us to also identify women in the very, very earliest stages of infection. So one of the things we've been able to do is actually start women on antiretroviral treatment very early, Mm -hmm. like earlier than anyone else has really been able to do so. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, if you start treatment that early, are there benefits that we don't realize? I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. by identifying women that early, you know, there are opportunities to, you know, understand sort of in what ways does the immune system fail that allows them to become infected? Mm-hmm. And also, what can we do in those earlier, earliest stages of infection that might either limit the size of that mm-hmm. infection, limit the consequences of infection? You know, and, and those are some of the really, I think, interesting um, questions that are being addressed in that study as well. So does this socioeconomic problem shape how you do your research here once you come back to the United States? Well, I mean, think for me, it's just made me much more aware of how important understanding the social context of disease mm-hmm. is. You know, I think, you know, as a as a biologist, you sometimes focus on just the biology of a problem, which involves, you know, viruses interacting with cell surface proteins, you know, on certain target cells, viral replication, things like that. But, you know, if you use that kind of insight in the absence of any kind of understanding of how HIV is transmitted, then what you do is you run the risk of potentially creating tools that aren't going to work because no one will use them. Even if they work biologically, right, they have to be, you know, something that can be, that can actually be deployed in the real world and that people will use, right? This is part of the problem with some of the interventions that have been tried. Like, for example, we know that um, oral prep will actually protect you very well against um, HIV. But when they did large studies, um, some of which were conducted amongst women in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, it didn't work because it seems like, you know, people didn't want to take it. And it was interesting because I talked to one of the investigators involved in one of those studies, and she said that when they talked to participants, like one anecdote she told me was that someone told her that one of the problems was the bottles, the pill bottles, that they would give the medication in pill bottles and that pill bottles would rattle uh, within if you carried them in your purse or your bag, and that there was such a fear of stigma, you know, against HIV, having HIV meds on your person, that um, they wouldn't carry them around because of the noise, and that if they'd actually just distribute them in, like, cloth satchels or something, that people actually might carry them around like that kind of insight you know you can do the you can do the studies and show that yes you know taking antiretroviral therapy to prevent hiv works but if you don't understand the social context then in the end it's not going to prevent infection right so it's i think hiv is a disease in which it's so important to understand that social context and particularly that social context in in sub-saharan africa I mean, that's, I think, one of the reasons why we and obviously others, many others, sort of realize that, recognize that that's an important thing to do. So you mentioned that you also are doing extensive research on the role of um, HIV progression in the gut and the HIV-TB co-infection. So can you just tell me a little bit about the research that you're doing in those aspects? I mean, before HIV, TB rates were actually going down and the global community was actually making great strides in terms of controlling TB. And then when HIV hit, 
then you know you saw this surge in in tb and and it's hiv tb co-infection which is um which is which is it's it's sort of they're both multipliers you know just having both of those epidemics converge has really just been devastating i think for sub-saharan africa and so that's why we also feel like it's important to better understand you know more specifically at a cellular level sort of what are the changes that hiv is inducing within um particularly cells in the lung that cause them to be more susceptible um to tb and cause hiv infected people who have tb to progress more rapidly um but like the other mucosal sites where we're working the challenge is that those cells seem to be very different than the cells that are out there in the blood. So to do those studies, you actually have to sample in the in the lungs, and that means you know either doing sputum collection or doing a bronchoscopy. Um, but you know bronchoscopy is really probably the better um, the the better method of sampling. But it's you know it's more complicated than you know drawing blood for sure. But um, because the cells in the lung are so specialized and unique to the lung that we think that it's important to actually look at those cells specifically. In the gut, one of the things that we've been really interested in is understanding the gut, the mi gut microbiome and how that may be involved in HIV disease progression. So there's been a lot of press about the microbiome and sort of, you know, I think that it's sort of penetrated sort of popular consciousness. Um, all these, this community of bacteria of, you know, of, uh, bacteria that live in your gut normally and naturally do you know good things for you um, so we've been doing work characterizing that microbiome and better understanding how uh, that microbiome be, may be altered in HIV infection um, and we've been looking at you know communities of HIV infected um, individuals both in Boston and in Africa particularly in Uganda Botswana and, and South Africa and you know it's clear that there are you know, significant changes in the gut communities that occur with HIV infection. And so we're now trying to better understand, are those communities actually important for disease progression? Like, is there enrichment, for example, of bacteria that may be more likely to translocate, drive this chronic immune activation that we've been talking about? Um, and those are still sort of ongoing studies. So, as I mentioned in your introduction, in addition to running the Quan Lab here at the Reagan Institute, you also run a clinical practice in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Mass General Hospital. So, why did you choose to pursue both the physical, fast-paced career of being a physician and the more removed, slow, methodical career of being a researcher? <laughs> They're both... Total chaos, actually. <laughs> Neither is slow or methodical. Um, I don't know. It just, I think that, you know, I loved research. I love seeing patients. I think a lot of people will tell you they kind of feed different parts of your mind and they inform mm -hmm. one another. Um, I think for me personally, a lot of my research is driven by, you know, the patients that I see, mm -hmm. um, my desire to sort of help um, in some small way at least. And it's also something that keeps me very motivated. Sometimes I think about it, 
you know, when I think about how hard we work in the hospital to save one person's life, like when you're in the ICU and you're doing 30 hour shifts every three days and, and that's just for the handful of people that you can see. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and when we're talking about, you know, working in research, you're talking about potentially impacting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. So I, I do have this feeling like the clinical world come, kind of really keeps me motivated because I think, well, if I'm going to work that hard to just try to affect that handful, those handful of patients that I can see, then I should be working just as hard or harder to try to do something which, you know, could potentially have a much broader impact. You know, I think that that's one of the real appeals of research for me that I can only see so many people in a day. Like, you know, when you're in clinic, when you're a clinician, you know, you'll see 10, 15 people in a day, but research provides the opportunity to potentially affect a far greater number of people than you could ever see during a career. Um, and so I think that's one of the real appeals of this life. Um, although it is complicated, I think, um, difficult and it is sort of like having trying to have two full-time jobs at the same time it's also extraordinarily rewarding and um you know i love it i come into work and literally i just i just love what i do right i love the creative freedom i think being able to see patients is a privilege um and i i just really appreciate the fact that you know i can as long as i can convince people in the lab but I can try to redirect the focus of the lab to where I think, you know, the real opportunities are. Medicine and research make sense together. Like it doesn't always, there are a lot of ways in which it doesn't make sense, but the fact that medicine can make disease real, right? It's not just understanding a model system or like, mm -hmm. you know, looking at in vitro assays and in dishes, you know, it's actually, you connect the disease to a person mm -hmm. that you've seen and I think that's really the power of the physician-scientist model that, mm -hmm. you know, for you, it's not really an abstraction. Like, you understand what it's like to treat people. You understand the limitations. And you see where there really needs to be innovation or new insight to try to improve things. And I think that that's sort of what I think physician-scientists are supposed to do. They're supposed to, you know, translate, you know, basic research into the clinics. But... Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times it starts in the clinics where you sort of go around, you see things that are frustrating or just, you know, need innovation. And so you go back to the lab and then you start, mm -hmm. you know, you start doing things to try to improve that. Right. So, um, I mean, we, we've been doing, <laughs> we sort of crazily, the lab started this other project. I mean, we already have a million projects, but <laughs> we started a totally different project with nothing to do with what we do in the lab, really, which yeah. is, you know, and it was basically because I was in the hospital really frustrated, which is I go on clinical service in the ID division. And, you know, when I'm in the hospital, there are oft many times where I see a patient who I have a very high suspicion that they have an infection. So what do we what do we do? We basically draw a sample like a blood culture or urine culture. We send it off and then we just wait for something to grow out of it. And that takes three to five days for something to grow and for the micro lab to identify what the bug is and then what antibiotics I should use to treat it. Right. To me, that's just insane. Right. That's literally the same technology platform that Louis Pasteur used in the 1800s <laughs> yeah. to diagnose infections. And we haven't innovated that to any significant degree. Mm -hmm. So we started a project in the lab 
um, where we're trying to use sort of next generation sequencing to kind of as a clinical diagnostic because in the lab we could take a swab and we could sequence and put it on the sequencer right away and actually figure out what bacteria it was and so um and that was a project that has nothing to do with sort of my stated focus of the lab but that was something that just came from just my frustration with how slow and inefficient existing processes were in the hospital where it really counted um and that's sort of, I think, you know, one example of what I kind of think of as the opportunities that physician scientists have to, to, you know, to, to make change that, you know, you really understand much better the needs in the hospital and when taking care of patients. And, but you also kind of can go back to lab and actually try yeah. to figure out solutions and engineer solutions. Um, and, um, and that's why I love this. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a very specific area. Like, I think that, you know, it's sort of like, I sometimes describe it as being kind of like being bicultural. Like, you know, maybe your family only speaks to you in Italian, but you grew up in the U.S. and all your friends only speak, you know, English. And you're not entirely Italian, but you're not entirely, you know, like, you know, some other kids in your <laughs> that you grew up with. And so you become something very distinct, you know? Um, but that, I think that space between domains, it's, it's very fertile ground. And if you can comfortably sort of live in that space, and in this case, you know, the space between basic science research and the clinical world, I think there's, there are a lot of opportunities there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting hearing about how the work that you're doing in the clinic and, your observations and even your frustrations in the clinic are coming here and shaping your research. And that kind of just sparks a question because, you know, I, I look at the personnel that's here and, and the majority of people that are here just are just do research. And even looking, um, you know, I read an article the other day of that and it said that the, the number of, um, physician scientists has been steadily going down right, over yeah. the past couple of decades. So, you know, you talk about this fertile ground that's kind of there for the taking in between, you know, the physician and the researcher. So I'm just wondering why the the career paths are kind of going in opposite directions instead of converging in, in that fertile ground there. Yeah, I think a lot of it's just logistics. I think that if you think about the training path, you know, you do four years of medical school. You know, if you do a PhD, you do five years of a PhD. Then you have to do internship, you know, at least a couple years of residency, maybe a few years of fellowship. Then you do a postdoc, right? And then, you know, then you start thinking about starting a lab. And that's kind of where your research career begins. Like you're starting your research career at an age where, you know, most of your classmates in medical school are already, you know, attending on the wards and sort of yeah, yeah. much more senior where most of your PhD classmates have their own labs already established mm -hmm. and are fully funded. And, you know, it's a very long path. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, you know, life kind of closes in on you. You know, you could be at a stage, statistically, most MD PhDs actually just do clinical work. And in part, it's because, 
you know, by the time you actually have to make the choice where maybe you, you finish your clinical training and you're in your postdoc, you know, your choice is, well, you know, maybe you have, you know, children and a spouse and other obligations, you know, and your choice is, okay, well, I could work for the next, you know, five, six, seven years, finishing my postdoc, starting up a lab, building something, you know, or I could just go do clinical practice and, you know, be very settled. Mm -hmm. Um, And even if you really want to do research, it's just, you know, and you're, you know, you're probably in your 40s at that stage, right? It's just, you know, is it really going to be worth it? And even if it's worth it for you, is it going to be worth it to put your friends and family through that as well? Like you're sort of, you know, sometimes you feel like a perpetual student. Um, So there are a lot of factors that complicate that path that make it logistically challenging. Um, But what I tell people is that if it's the right path for you, that there's this point where it just gets really incredibly good. Like it's just so interesting. Once you sort of have a little bit of scientific independence and you have clinical independence, you're attending in the hospital, you know, there's just, you can just go gangbusters. You know, it's like, sometimes I think about like, you're like in a ship on the open ocean and all you see is like horizon and sky. Like you can go any direction you want, you know, you can choose to, you know, weight it more towards clinical work, basic science, clinical research. You can do policy. You can pivot anytime you want. You can, you know, follow new ideas. It's just such a, it's such an amazingly open and creative path, Mm -hmm. but it, it really is very, very difficult up until a certain point where I think you have a little bit more independence, you know, up until then you're essentially, you know, slaving away. You're not making much money. You're, you know, overworked, you know, you're exhausted. Um, and you're also constantly living the schizophrenic life where when you're in the hospital, the fact that you have research interests have very little relevance to your mm-hmm. life or your, you know, your work or, and then when you're in the lab, you know, no one really cares that you have, you know, clinical responsibilities and expertise. And it's only when you gain more independence that you can actually kind of bring those two halves of your brain together and create something that really makes sense for you. Um, and balance that in a way that like works for you. So it's a hard path, but it really is. Um, I mean, for me, it just, you know, I love it. Mm-hmm. I just genuinely come to work and I think this is awesome. Like I really <laughs> am excited. Like people in the lab will tell you I'm like emailing at four in the morning and they're like, what are you doing? But it's like, it's, you know, you can't do that unless you actually have some sort of genuine investment and joy from it. You just will burn out. Yeah. So. So if you were to give one piece of advice to somebody that's in college, graduating college soon, who's done research, is thinking about, you know, do I go to medical school or apply to a PhD program or an MD PhD program? What would you what would you say to them <laughs> as they're considering this decision? Going to banking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would say I don't I mean it really there's no right answer there. It's really what's right for you, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just you have to figure out what is right. It's about fit. Like I, I tell this when I, you know, we have like a lot of great students come in the lab to do rotations or, or things like that. And I always say, you know, no doubt that you are talented, smart, bright. You'll do well wherever you end up, right? That mm-hmm. what I'm trying to assess is fit. 
It's not good or bad. It's like, mm. is this the right environment? Is this the kind of place where you can really thrive? Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with this choice. There's no right or wrong answer. It's about what is the path in which that's going to allow you to really kind of thrive and grow. Yeah. And it's, that's about fit. One thing I would say is that there are no secrets, right? It's sort of the things that you're, you hear over and over again are kind of true. Like, you know, do what you love, yeah. right? That's really it. It's, it's that simple. Dr. Doug Kwan is the principal investigator of the Kwan Lab and the director of clinical operations at the Reagan Institute of Mass General Hospital, MIT, in Harvard. He is also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and runs a clinical practice in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Mass General Hospital. 